Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This week, we're very happy to have John Wyver. John Wyver is a writer and producer. And John, thanks for joining us. And tell us everything else you do, because you have a lot of titles. <laughs> thanks, Kirk. It's very good to uh, to be talking to you. Um, yes, so I uh, write about um, the presentation of the arts uh, in television and cinema, and I've got an academic position at the University of Westminster to do that. But I'm also um, very much an active producer, and I have been for many years uh, making documentaries about the arts, and particularly performance programs um, for television and for live cinema. Um, and in that context, I produce the Royal Shakespeare Company's um, live uh, from Stratford-upon-Avon uh, cinema broadcasts. We've made uh, 27 of those so far. 27 already? Wow. wow. So I've known you since, I think, early 2014, and we met in Stratford when I wanted to talk to you about this. And I'll link to an article on my website, an interview with you. I was really interested in the whole production of this. And I remember at the time, the plan was to do the 37 plays in six years. And that got kind of sidetracked even before the lockdown, didn't it? Yeah, it's taken longer than we hoped. Um, it's taken longer to put on the productions in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre and their smaller sister theatre, The Swan. Uh, but the plan was, uh, before the lockdown, absolutely to complete the canon, the 37 plays that are included in the first folio, um, uh, first uh, printed in um, 1623. Um, and the hope, but of course no one knows anything about the after, the hope is that we will be able to complete that, <clears throat> that we'll be able to do screen versions, high-quality screen versions of each one of the plays. No theatre company in the world has ever done that. Um, the BBC did, but these weren't... These, these were all recorded in studios. These weren't stage productions. That's right. The, the BBC Television Shakespeare is a uh, full cycle um, uh, of the plays made between 1978 and 1985. They are made with different casts, different directors. There was no repertory company. And they're shot almost all uh, multi-camera um, electronic recordings uh, made in television studios. A couple of them, in fact, were shot on location. Um, some of them are very distinguished. Some of them still absolutely stand up. Uh, some of them are pretty creaky. Uh, yes. Uh, 40 years <laughs> on. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So I first discovered Shakespeare in high school, as many Americans may be used to, and it was Julius Caesar that caught me. And I read a little bit of Shakespeare now and then, but it was in the late 1980s when I moved to Paris that the one of the French date-run TV channels was playing these things. 
And I was working as an English teacher, sort of part-time, and I was at home in the afternoon, and I turned on the TV, and I don't remember which one it was, and it grabbed me. And for weeks, I was trying to catch them. And that really re that rekindled my interest in Shakespeare, was seeing them. Years later, I bought the DVDs, and then, you know, moved to this country, moved to Stratford-upon-Avon, and now everything is here. As much as I'd love to talk about theater, though, the reason we want to talk to you is just about performance in general, because... As you, you mentioned that term, the after, and I, and I like the way you've been using that in your writings and your Twitterings, that there will be an after at some point. And music and theater and dance and opera, all of these things face the same constraints. And, and I know that obviously you're thinking about this a lot because, well, you can't do a lot of your work until we get live performances. So... I mean, on the one hand, what was it, an orchestra in Barcelona that played to a bunch of potted plants, and that's very attractive, and that makes for some nice videos, but that's not going to get the arts back again, is it? It's not. Um, I mean, this is a huge set of issues that the cultural sector is facing here and around the world. Um, I think, I mean, one of the first things to say is the after is not a defined period. The after is there is not going to be a moment when, um, you know, even if there is a COVID-19 vaccine uh, where kind of suddenly everything goes back to the before. Um, this is going to be a long and complex um, and immensely tricky process to adjust uh, in all elements of our lives. But particularly in this context, to live performance, to the congregation of large numbers of people in enclosed spaces, if that ever happens again. I think it will, but, you know, that's a, it's, it's, it's not a complete given. Um, as well as, you know, all the problems associated with rehearsing and um, performing uh, safely and responsibly um, in contexts where close intimate contact contact is absolutely at the heart of of cultural production so it's um you know it's a really really complex and challenging um, set of questions creatively and commercially we're seeing some small steps toward live performance in classical music wigmore hall has been doing a bunch of recitals one or two people just a small production team in the hall. But I'm just thinking of like, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with the huge choir. We've seen that choirs are a big vector of infection. Now, you could do a choir on tape, I guess, couldn't you? You could, you know, do it for orchestra and electronics, as they say. But one thing it looks to me, at least in classical music, is there may be a trend towards smaller ensembles and getting away from the large orchestras. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think um the 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 ways in which um we've seen the the emergence initially of chamber music um of uh, small scale recitals at, as you say at the Wigmore um at the Royal Opera House in the three um performances that they have done so far i think that will become um a, a really important part of of where we go moving forwards and you know, in many ways, I welcome that. I, I'm a huge fan and enthusiast of um, of chamber works, and um, I 
I hope maybe one of the tiny tributaries is that we'll see uh, contemporary composers engaging with those um, live opportunities in a you know a re reimagined and and reenthused way. We had a guest on Timo Andres on who was denied his Carnegie Hall debut. So instead, what he did was. He recorded all the his complete program and put that on the internet. So it's sort of like, as you say, we're taking uh, one performance and rechanneling it into some other kind of performance. And you know, two of the huge joys of the lockdown have been the recitals that um, Angela Hewitt and Igor Levitt have been doing from their apartments. I mean, uh, both of those have been extraordinary um, intimate engagements with musicians absolutely at the top of their game. And to see them in a very um, kind of unbuckled way, but very close up, um, performing in surroundings that they feel completely comfortable with um, has been, you know, absolutely extraordinary. And the focus that um, the screen has brought to just looking at Angela Hewitt's hands on the keyboard as she plays Bach or Chopin or whatever, just amazing and, um, you know, absolutely uh, wonderful. I think what we will also see... What we obviously have seen, and I think now will become, you know, a really a more important part of the performing ecology going forwards, is a much more imaginative use, both live and recorded, of, if you like, the screen space rather than than the space of the concert hall. Actually, thinking about in in imaginative ways how. Um, performers, musicians, dancers, certainly actors can uh, work together within the space of the screen to do something um, that is an extension of a parallel activity to theatre or concert going. And um, again, part of the interest of the past few months has been seeing how companies have embrace those possibilities so imaginatively and um, so cleverly and in many ways so movingly. You know, um, there have been some really uh, remarkable uh, presentations. The Juilliard um, did a... Uh, uh, the Bolero. Uh, the Bolero is beautiful, just exquisite, still online, absolutely something to look at. And our friend Andy Doe produced the 1st of May choral thing in Oxford. Oh, uh, off right. the top of Morden yeah. Town. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and possibly my favourite is, um, is the piece that um, the uh, ballet company of the Opera of Paris uh, uh, have, have done. Um just, you know, wonderful pieces. So I think those uh, offer a different kind of, of performance, which, you know, don't have the, the sort of traditional uh, sense of being in the same space at the same moment with a performer, which has always been the kind of traditional essence, uh, essential understanding of what theatre is, but nonetheless have um, remarkable uh, aesthetic and affective qualities as performance. And I don't think 
I don't think we're going to lose that. You know, I don't think we're suddenly all going to um, rush away from our screens and uh, forget that, um, or or at least think that. Well, that was okay. That was a sort of that was a sort of compensation while we couldn't get to, you know, the Royal Albert Hall or the proms or whatever. Um, I think that I think that we've seen that that is a very valid and important. Uh, form of performance in and of itself and i hope that that will continue to develop and and grow and continue to be part of our performance lives so expanding the performance space to not only what's live but what's virtual which could be um unique works that are created virtually or it could be works that are created in conjunction with something else yeah, absolutely. I think hybrid um, hybrid possibilities very interesting. You know, being able to combine um, online something that is happening in um, the Royal Albert Hall with um, elements that are coming into the screen space from different places and in in different ways. Um, you know, I think we're we're there's been a obviously what we've seen over the last certainly the last 10 years, is the growth and development of the translation of theatre, dance, opera in out of the, the big houses and onto cinema screens. And that's been a very, very important um, development begun by the Met in this round, begun by the Met in you know, 2006, and and now developed through NT Live, through the RSC, through lots and lots and lots of other houses around the world doing that. Yes, but you're seeing that from the UK. We were just speaking about that before we started recording. In the US, other than the Metropolitan Opera, this is extremely rare. I've got an article in the Washington Post today. As Hamilton becomes a movie, suddenly we're all in the room where it happens. So Hamilton was filmed live, the same way that you film productions here. And it's going to be on the new Disney streaming service. And it's, we're used to it. We've been seeing this for years. You know, the NT Live started in 2009. You started in late 2013. And it's new in the States. And I, I was saying to Doug before, the first big thing that people saw that got them used to this idea of live performances was Springsteen on Broadway, right. which is a combination of a concert and theater. Yeah. And it certainly makes sense for that to continue happening, but not just that one or two camera, you know, close up long shot production, but the kind where cameras are all around when they're moving around. Yeah. I've been fortunate to attend a number of the recordings at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, and you've got multiple cameras tracking. You've got a, a camera on a boom yeah. and you you have it's not just like I've got some DVDs of jam bands from the 90s. It's just, you know, one or two cameras and it's. It, it's a creative that production is a creative activity as much as the performances. It's a it's a large scale, complex and very expensive creative interpretation of what is on the stage. Do you suppose that's not why that's why we don't see it in the United States because it's so challenging to to stage? I think the I think the economics are, you know, they're really they're they're hard to make work honestly um uh the it to do it properly to do it to a very high technical standard to do it creatively and imaginatively uh, requires a lot of rehearsal requires a big 
skilled crew. Um, and uh, it also requires being able to secure uh, for an affordable price an awful lot of different sets of rights, performers' rights and you know music underlying music rights and all of that. Um, if you're Disney uh, taking on Hamilton, well, you know, maybe that's that isn't so tricky. You've got an army of lawyers and and a big bank balance to to work with. But for a lot of companies, um, just the economics of it is is really challenging. And we haven't yet um, th th it hasn't been proven that um, this kind of form, uh, even into cinemas, but certainly to pay-per-view uh, operations into homes, uh, will provide uh, sustainable revenues um, for all sorts of cultural organisations. Now, I think what has what has happened over the past few months is there's been a, a renewed interest in the UK in in this kind of work, and and a, and it's been in some ways valued more strongly because of quite a lot of this work being put out for free by the National Theatre or the RSC and others. But whether that interest will continue in the after and whether that interest will be sufficiently monetizable to sustain um, continuing production is, you know, one of the big questions that we're all trying to grapple with. As far as music's concerned, I mean, it's been decades that we've had films of orchestras playing. I mean, I remember all of the great films of Leonard Bernstein with the Vienna Misogynist Orchestra, and you'd get you'd get the close-up right when the clarinetist is playing the clarinet, and you'd get the close-up when the double bass is playing. So, because I, I'm thinking back of the performances that I've seen filmed at the Royal Shakespeare Company, where the cameramen have these, what do you call them? Are they cue sheets or something? So they know exactly where they're going to be. This, these aren't cameras that are just pointing at random, and then it's edited after words because these are this is all done for a live broadcast to cinemas so you do a camera rehearsal you have a director who creates the cue sheets and everything is really precise and this has been done in music for decades so why can't we keep seeing this in music uh, well you know i i would i would hope that we can i, I think very few um orchestras and and houses have really embraced this um uh, the Berlin Phil is the obvious one that has, you know, and has, yeah. and has I, I think, made a creative, I don't know about a commercial, but certainly a creative success of it. Now, they've done it um, by not having as elaborate a setup as we have um, in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford. They have multiple fixed or automatically operated i mean remotely operated cameras in the hall and and they're small and unobtrusive they're small and unobtrusive and they kind of you know they do a pretty good job of following cues picking up solos and all of that um but it's still uh relatively distant um i don't necessarily mean um you know distant in in terms of uh, length um, meters or whatever, but sort of distant uh, conceptually from how the music is playing out and what the conductor is doing. It. They don't feel like visual interpretations. No, and it's and it's 
you know, it's pretty, it's pretty on the nose. It's pretty much kind of following it straightforwardly. It's just a straight document. It's a just a documentation well, of the it's, performance. It's better than our, it's better than a one camera archival film, right. but it's not meant to be a creative act in and of itself. No, absolutely. I think I think that's right. Um, now, I, I I think that's partly to do with the fact that it's expensive to do that creative work, but it's also to do with a profound conservatism within the performing organizations i think this applies to music as much as it applies to the stage profound conservatism about what is the appropriate visual language to present um a performance of beethoven or a or a staging of shakespeare there is a sense that we need to do that pretty transparently in a way that doesn't call attention to itself um as a mediating process, and and I've got a I've got a story about this, which um, you know I was very struck by. I one of the one of the early metropolitan um, broadcasts to cinemas um, was of a production of Tristan and Isolde from from New York. Um, long opera. It was set in a um, pretty ab- abstract environment, so great swathes of color. And as you'll know only too well, not a lot happens, at least in action terms, interest and it's amongst the most sublime music ever composed. But, you know, there aren't many sword fights. Um, (laughs) And uh, what the um, what the screen director did, um, uh, very distinguished director called Barbara Willis Sweet, um, was she would she had big wide shots of the stage um in most of the screen but she set into that picture close-ups of the singers so you might have therefore you know three as it were picture in picture images of the singers and i thought it was very effective it was quite quite imaginative and innovative i thought it was very effective because it meant that i could you know, enjoy the kind of sublime quality of this vast stage, uh, but at the same time, I was close to the drama of of um, these lovers uh, singing their hearts out. So it was kind of like a Zoom call with a background of the whole stage. <laughs> exactly what it was. Um, uh, although the, the the kind of quality of the audio was rather better than yeah. most. Of yeah. <laughs> um, at the end of. Um, of this, you know, long performance in the Clapham Picture House, um, the credits rolled through and there were a group of people behind me who, as the screen director's credit rolled through, booed vociferously, <laughs> um, which is a pretty remarkable thing to happen in a in a cinema. Um, for, for a broadcast of Wagner. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, from, you know, over 4,000 miles away, right? Yeah. And I asked them why they were booing, and they said, we don't want our Wagner messed with. We don't. Mm. Uh, we want it straight. We want it pure. We want to see the stage, and that's it. We don't want all these tricks. And I mm. think that sense of trickery, of kind of playing around, is something that many performing companies fear, I think, wrongly. I yes. think, for examples, um, particularly in the history of television, um, where 
occasionally very imaginative screen directors have worked to bring highly sophisticated interpretative processes to the presentation of music. Um, I, I have been writing, in fact, about a screen director called Barry Gavin, who worked, who started working in uh, the BBC in the early 1960s and worked at the BBC for over 30 years, producing an immensely distinguished catalogue of essentially performance works, often created in close collaboration with major creative figures. The, the, the key... Uh, relationship that he developed was with Pierre Boulez and and uh, with Boulez he made more than a dozen pieces of um, uh, performance responding both to Boulez's own compositions but also to some of the kind of uh, monuments of, of modernism, uh, Berg and Schoenberg and so forth. And Barry uh, understood that you could take the camera and use it to engage with, to question, to reimagine the performance on the screen. And by doing that, you could both enhance the kind of effective quality of the music performance, but you could also give the, the viewer an understanding of the construction of this quite complex and, you know, quotes, difficult contemporary music. And, you know, there are pieces tucked away in the archive of the BBC, which reveal, I would say, um, you know, what what a piece of, of Berg or a piece of Ravel is doing in a way that is quite unique and is quite distinct from what you would be able to get even sitting in the front row of the Queen Elizabeth Hall. So I think there are examples that you can look back to. But I think there is a, a conservatism, maybe even a fear amongst, um, you know, performing companies uh, t uh, against embracing those kinds of possibilities. I think we've heard from other artists who complain about the don't want to offend the subscribers. And uh, they're generally the older and more moneyed uh, people and what, you know, they're paying the piper. Our last guest was harpsichordist Mahana Svahani, who's just released a recording of music for harpsichord and electronics. And there was an incident where he was playing, I think it was in Cologne. He started playing Steve Reich's piano phase. So it's written for two pianos. And he was playing harpsichord together with another harpsichord on tape. And people in the audience started booing and they were fighting. And it's like, it, it, it's almost as if Stravinsky was back or something. I mean, I, I just can't understand today that people would get that upset to actually, if you don't like it, walk out, right? Yeah, or just sit on your hands for 20 Something yeah. else will come along in a, in a while, you know? It's, there's a great paradox here because you're right. I think not, obviously not all older audiences have that resistance, but, but it, you know, it is, it is a, a resistance that is found among some of the more traditional or some of the more conservative concert goers and theatre goers. Um, and yet, certainly in the UK, there is such an impetus to, to find and attract and appeal to younger audiences 
within the arts. Um, you know, that's a huge push, both from corporate sponsors and from public funders, that uh, we need to be able to appeal to everybody, but particularly to younger people and, and engage them imaginatively in all kinds of music. And I would argue very strongly that some of these visual techniques, some of this more imaginative work, is absolutely how you're going to appeal to to. It's a visual language that young people today understand that can help give them a, a, a way to get into something. Well, I think even for us older people who are interested in it, I'd like to see things that I'm familiar with in a new and innovative way. I mean, that's one of the things I enjoy about jazz music, for instance. It's like, you know, you know how it goes, but you'd like to see it in a different way. Well, hold on to your hat, because Ian McKellen just said that he's going to play Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's great. And I think that that will be really distinctive and interesting and challenging. Um, you know, just as I'd like to, I don't know, see, uh, um, you know, Miles Davis play Bach or whatever in a, in a different kind of way. But I think that also has to be uh, complemented and paralleled with with visual and media techniques, which will... Uh, open up um, those performances and and those possibilities, and I, I I'm disappointed, I guess, in a way that um, certainly within television, because in British television, within public service broadcasting, um, within the BBC and within Channel Four, there has been such a strong tradition of visual innovation um, in performance and in other contexts that. I regret that uh, I think sometimes think we've forgotten some of that or we don't know about that. And that just by looking back a bit, you know, in an informed way with open minds, we could look forward in really exciting ways. And, uh, and certainly that's part of my, you know, academic work is to try and reveal um, parts of the of television history uh, where I think things were done in different ways which could uh, point us towards new ways of thinking and looking um, and presenting the arts in the future we, we've mostly been talking about dare I say highbrow stuff sure. um, if we lower our brows a bit and and just look at you know popular music okay the Rolling Stones they filmed a lot of their concerts they could make money filming one concert and broadcasting it but what really worries me is the broader performance industry of all the people from solo folk singers in bars to people playing in theaters that are going through this sort of gap in time before the lockdown, once we started hearing that there were cases here, my partner said to me, I'm not going back to that theater yeah, not yeah. until there's a vaccine. We go to the RSC. We're probably younger than the median age of people at the RSC. You're sitting in there for three hours with people coughing all around you. The, the last thing you would want is even pre-lockdown is to worry about that. So I'm thinking when I go to a theater or a concert and you've got to get in, so there's a lot of people going through a few doors. If there's an intermission, you've got to get out to go get a drink or go to the toilet. There's never enough toilets for the women, so they have to wait online. Then you have to go back. Then you have to leave and you're sitting next to people and someone's coughing behind you and someone sneezes to the left. And 
this is a new world, isn't it? It certainly is. And I don't think any of us have got any sense of um, how that is going to work. You know, I think we were all pretty shocked, um, what, a month ago or so when we saw um, the auditorium of the Berliner Ensemble um, where they had stripped out basically two-thirds of the seats and left pairs of seats isolated across the stalls because that's what they felt um, they could uh, accommodate in some safe way for the autumn. And as they stress then, as I think they and other theatres are going to carry through, they're going to keep the um, uh, the house lights at a, at a third of the you know, normal illumination, not take them down to uh, to complete darkness. And they will encourage people to use the toilet facilities um, throughout um, the performance, that people will have to be able to get up and, um, you know, walk through this depopulated stalls to the toilets um, throughout the performance, because otherwise they will simply not be able to get... Uh, you know, even a reduced house um, through those facilities in the interval. Um, we're going to get have to get used to that kind of thing, to uh, people directing us, uh, directing um, uh, audiences uh, down aisles in particular ways, along rows in particular ways, um, whether we're going to have to get used to everybody being expected to wear a mask, whether we're going to have to be expected to wear gloves you know i mean it's, it's 120 years since it was you were expected to wear gloves to the theater <laughs> but maybe in a different kind of way that's what we're going to have to do you know um now i don't think i mean you know i can't speak for the royal shakespeare company and and um or indeed any of the other companies that that are going through this but i know that there's a huge amount of work going on trying to work out what the implications of this is going, is going to be alongside, you know, the desperate attempts to lobby the government to provide additional public funding to sustain um, the companies, the freelancers, the industries that depend on the theatre and so forth. Well, that to me is one of the biggest worries that all of these support industries are going to be decimated and that when the after does come, there just won't be enough people ready to go back. There won't be, you won't have the services to rent your cameras or lights or whatever. The companies will be out of business. Absolutely. And the, you know, the, the, I mean, I know, I know one lighting designer, for example, who, um, very promising lighting designer near the beginning of his career. Um, he's, he's retrained as a railway signal operator. Um, uh -huh. because, because you had to find a way forward through the, you know, through the lockdown. And, and so he's now going off um, to, um, you know, operate the signals on the British Rail Network. Uh, and he actually, rather wonderfully, is finding it pretty, pretty fulfilling. But I think there's <laughs> going to be lots and lots of those kinds of stories. And the skill and experience and the creative knowledge that has been built up, that has sustained the theatre and then because it's sustained the theatre, has also sustained the television industry and, you know, all the productions. For and DVDs and Blu-rays and, and yeah. CDs. And yeah. the movie industry, you know, um, you don't, 
you know, making Bond movies just doesn't happen like that. So it's yeah. vast industry underneath it. And it's a fragile industry. It's an industry that um, can very easily be ripped apart. And that's a creative tragedy, but it's also going to be a commercial tragedy. You know, if 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 the British film industry um, is not going to be able to make those kinds of big blockbuster US financed um, movies, that's going to knock a huge hole in in the country's GDP, never mind, you know, into any other uh, sort of, you know, more kind of uh, precious, creative sense of our world. So these are very, very big and, and tricky questions. And, and honestly, there's a lot of work going on to address them, but I don't think anybody's got any of those, any of the answers. And um, oh, maybe maybe in, you know, six months or a year, we can talk again and, uh, and see if we can see uh, how some of those answers are, are starting to play out. Well, thank you very much for talking with us, John. We're ending on a bit of a minor chord there, but this is just the reality, isn't it? John Wyver, I'll just mention that your book, Screening the Royal Shakespeare Company, A Critical History, has just been released in an affordable paperback, because since it's published by the Arden Shakespeare, the hardcover was very expensive. John, thanks very much for joining us. So as we are about to close out another episode with our next track picks, we want to thank our Patreon patrons for the support. You can help underwrite the show, too, with a small monthly donation of your pocket pennies or couch quarters or whatever by visiting patreon.com slash the next track. And thank you. And Kirk. How could I not pick the new Bob Dylan album, Rough and Rowdy Ways? This was released on June 19th. We're recording this on the 29th, and it's not going to be out for another 10 days. So if you're wondering why you haven't heard me mention it up until now, that's why. I find it extraordinary that a 79-year-old musician can come out with such an excellent album. We we heard Murder Most Foul, the, the, the long song about the Kennedy assassination a few months ago, and I think that was my next track pick a while back. But this whole album is made up of extraordinary songs. There's almost a sort of a new Dylan lyrical style in a lot of them that, that we hear in Murder Most Foul and a few of the other songs like I Contain Multitudes and Key West. And this sort of free association lyrical style that he's doing, where he's not singing, he's not talking, but he's doing something in between. There, there's a there's a unity across this album. We don't know when this was recorded. At least I haven't seen any liner notes about it yet. When Murder Most Foul came out, Dylanologists were speculating it was either very new or it was ten years old. It kind of seems there's there's a, a lot of similarities in the music. So I'm thinking in the last few years. But that Bob Dylan, 79 years old, after the Nobel Prize, you know, lots of pressure, comes out with such a great album. Don't miss it. Even if you don't like Dylan, listen to it once. My son listened to it. He said he liked it. He's not a Dylan fan. So anyway, rough and rowdy ways. Bob Dylan. Doug, what have you got? Well, I can't believe I haven't mentioned this album in the past. I had to go back and look at older episodes to make sure that I hadn't. So I guess I've been saving it up for something special. I guess this is a special occasion. But anyway, I, what I wanted to, how I wanted to start off with was that recently my wife and I uh, drove between Boston and Albany uh, to visit relatives and things like that. And when we take these road trips, which this is like a three-hour trip, um, I get to listen to the music that I want while she gets to read whatever she wants to read. And 
there really isn't a lot of conversation while we're driving because we're listening to music and reading. But every so often she will stop reading and say, hey, that sounds interesting. What is that? And invariably on this most recent trip, I had to say why that's super gross. Now, I can't, I can't like a good American say, why that's my favorite Supergrass record, darling. I can't, I can't call them Supergrass. I have to call them Supergrass. Um, because they're a very British band. Um, if you are familiar with them, and you might be because their music was everywhere in the 90s and early 2000s, um, if you're familiar with them, you know that they borrow a lot from a lot of other British bands. But if you really want a, a quick, concise tour of British music in the 70s, get their album, Life on Other Planets. Um, when I first heard this record, and I don't remember exactly how I did hear it. It came out in 2002. I must have heard one or two songs on the radio. Um, there is so much, uh, there, are, there are so many references to bands like the Kinks and T-Rex and Roxy Music and Pink Floyd and the Beatles and XTC and David Bowie and all of that stuff from the 70s. It, they really went out of their way to make sure that there were just these nuances in there of that. And, uh, and, and because they're Supergirls, um, they're great songwriters and they're great arrangers. And this particular album is really well produced. Um, so it goes by really fast. In fact, it's such a great album. I only listen to it as an album. I try not to listen to one or two tracks off of it. Um, it's, it really is a great album experience. So uh, if you are in the mood for a drive between Boston and Albany and um, you have the opportunity, pop in Life on Other Planets from Supergirls. It's my next track. This was episode number 187 of the next track. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support the next track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhorn, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.